John chapter 18 is where we will be today, the 18th chapter of the gospel according to John. I was doing the math on it this week. We have now been in John for 15 months, and within the next couple, we, Lord willing, we'll, we will be, complete this gospel. Um, and I know many of you have been here for most all the sermons, and, and I, I know I personally, studying through this this last year plus, have just really uh, enjoyed walking through God's Word, not only in my study, but with you every week, and, uh, and even more so now as we come to these final few chapters. And I was thinking about how the first book I ever read that wasn't just like a small children's book, uh, the, uh, the first book I read cover to cover that wasn't a children's book was Jurassic Park. Was for me, in whatever grade it was, sixth grade or something, that was a pretty thick book. And I'm reading this book, I'm like, wow, there's dinosaurs, right? I'm excited. And then you first hear about the T-Rex, and that's like the thing. It's like, yes, the T-Rex. Of course, then you see the movie, right? And you watch the movie, and you're just waiting for the T-Rex. Because what happens when the T-Rex is in a distance stepping? You see the puddles of water kind of moving, right? You hear a loud thud. And there's this anticipation to see it. And really, every time I watch the movie, even though I know the T-Rex is going to come, and I, I've seen the movie tons of times, even though I know there's still this anticipation of that moment when you see the big, bad dinosaur. Well, for all of us who know the Bible, who love the Word, we know at the end of these Gospels, we know that the climax happens, which is the death of Christ on the cross. And even though I've known for the past 15 months this was coming here very shortly, as I've studied this just myself, I can feel the intensity of the Word uh, as we get closer to that suffering of Christ. And I hope you will feel that and sense that even in today's text as we move one step closer uh, to our Savior laying down His life for our sins. So go with me on this journey today in John 18, and we're going to do one or two verses at a time, then I'll, I'll do a bigger section as we get near the end, but we're going to cover verses 1 through 27 today. Um, again, we'll do it a, a verse or two at a time and walk through it. I will eventually give you three main points, because that's what good Baptist preachers do, give you three main points. So have your pen ready to take notes. All right, so let's start with verse 1. If you're there, say word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples. Let's stop there. Jesus finishes praying in John 17, praying for himself, for his disciples, and for us as believers finishes this great prayer, and now he takes his group of followers and he leaves outside of Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley, which was a small valley outside of the city there. And as I researched it, the valley is actually mentioned many times in the Old Testament. A lot of, a lot of things happen in that valley. 
in many ways, it was known as the Valley of Death. There were people buried out there, and there were different things that happened out there that gave it kind of a negative connotation over the course of history. But it says here in verse 1 that there was a brook. Some scholars even say that during this time of year, as sacrifices were being made in Jerusalem at the temple, that this brook would probably even have blood running through it from the sacrifices. And some have speculated, as Jesus walked out with his disciples, did he look at this stream flowing with blood from the sacrifice of the animals and think about the sacrifice that he would pour out his blood in the coming days? That's what some scholars speculate. But we know, what we do know is Jesus goes out with his disciples and he finds a garden there. And we know this is the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't call it that, but in other places, of course, they do. And Jesus would often go here. This is not a place, this is not like his first time to go to this garden. He would often go here with his disciples to retreat or to rest and to pray. This garden had trees for shade, even caves that you could go to get away from the the elements in. Now, if you'll notice, verse 2 begins to talk about Judas Iscariot coming to betray him. And so for you who know the other Gospels, you understand that John leaves something out here, doesn't he? John leaves out the agony of the garden. And we know this moment, don't we, where Jesus goes and he tells his disciples, stay right here and pray while I go in here and pray to the Father. And Jesus goes in to pray and, and he, he prays and says, Father, uh, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. What's he say? Your will, thy will be done. Then he comes back to check on the disciples. What are they doing? They're asleep. He's like, come on, guys, stay up for a minute, pray with me. Then he goes back and prays again, doesn't he? The same prayer, Father, not my will, thy will be done. He goes back and sees the disciples, what are they doing? Fell back asleep, they kept hitting the snooze button. And he goes back and he prays again. And so this, we know, even though John doesn't mention it here, we know that uh, this agony certainly happened according to the other gospel writers. Well, let's focus on what John focuses on, which is the betrayal. Verse 2 and verse 3. It says, And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So a question for you. Was Jesus hiding in the garden? He wasn't, was he? Jesus knew that Judas had left the table back a chapter before here, a couple chapters before here. Judas had left the table, and remember Jesus told him, go do what you need to do as Judas went to betray Christ. And so Jesus knew that Judas would be coming. If Jesus wanted to hide, he could have went and hid, couldn't he? But he went to a place where Judas would know where to find him. He was not hiding. If Jesus was worried, which he wasn't, he could have went somewhere else. But then notice in verse 3, as we just read, Judas did not come out with a couple of officials, did he? Did you see what it says? He has a band of men and officers. Now, there are different words here to describe a number of troops. And the lowest number of troops that I found in any research on this word band would be 200 troops. And the largest number I found would be 1,000 troops. Many scholars put it between five and 600 troops. So imagine 
this group of, and it was a combination, by the way, of Jewish officers and Roman officers, let's, say, let's just say 500 to take a middle number, 500 troops coming to arrest this teacher at night. I think they wanted to make sure they got Jesus then. It was the right time for them in their eyes to arrest him. You see, Jesus had some followers, and the common folk, a lot of the common folk liked Jesus. He did good things, didn't he? He performed miracles. He healed some of their family members. And so even some people who didn't follow him might still take up for him in a sense. They didn't want any kind of revolt like that, so let's go at night. And let's take plenty of soldiers to make sure this thing goes smoothly. They wanted to make sure they got their man. And so I'm going to take my first point this morning from Judas. And the point is this. You can be around religion and still remain far from Christ. I feel like we've really picked on Judas in our study of John over the last months. But I think we learned from him. He was with Christ for three years, wasn't he? He heard Christ teach. He saw Christ perform miracles. He saw Christ interact with people. I mean, if I'm reading the scripture correctly, when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach and to do miracles themselves, Judas was in that number. Judas was sent out by Christ to serve. And so we can say, along with the other disciples, nobody was closer, in a sense, to religion than Judas. We can say, to some degree, Judas knew about the power of Christ and the love of Christ for people. But we can also say this. Judas was depraved. He was wicked. He was hard-hearted. He did not know Christ. And he sold Christ out for 30 pieces of silver. And in our text today, he comes and betrays the Lord. So I say that to you today because some of us may need to hear this. Just because we are connected to religion does not mean we're connected to Christ. Just because we have a Christian parent does not mean we know Christ. Now, it can help lead us toward Christ, of course. Just because we attend church does not mean we know Christ. It can help us lead us toward Christ, right? Just because we feel like we are a good person does not mean we know Christ. Your connection to a Christian family, your connection to a church does not keep you from God's wrath. Only saving faith keeps you from God's wrath. I want to give you this quote from Ryle because he says it beautifully here about this text. He says, Let us beware of resting our hopes of salvation on religious knowledge. How many people is that? They just depend on their knowledge, which knowledge is good, but that's not our hope. He says, However great, or religious advantages, however many, we may know all doctrinal truth and be able to teach others and yet prove rotten at heart and go down into the pit with Judas. We may bask in the full sunshine of spiritual privileges and hear the best of Christian teaching and yet bear no fruit to God's glory and be found withered branches of the vine, that's John 15, only fit to be burned. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
That's from the Apostle Paul. Above all, let us beware of cherishing within our hearts any secret besetting sin, such as, let me read this part to you, such as love of the world. One little leak, go ahead, one little leak may sink a ship. One allowed or unmortified sin may ruin a professing Christian. Let him that is tempted to be a careless man in his religious life consider these things and take care. Let him remember Judas Iscariot. His history is meant to be a lesson. And I don't know that we're going to mention him again in this study, but let's say it one more time that Judas is an example that just because we are close to religious things does not mean we automatically know Christ. We must repent of our sin and believe in the gospel to be saved. Right? We know that. We hold that to be true. Repent and believe. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. Again, he's not retreating. He goes forth to them and he says, Whom seek you? Who are you looking for? He says. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon, as, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Notice a second, a second point this morning. The second thing here is about Christ. The first one was about Judas. This one's about Christ. I want you to see his nature, his power, and his humility. I love these verses. Jesus was ready for this. He, he had said before, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now he knows his time had come. His hour had come. And he, he doesn't retreat from them. He, he steps up and says, who are you guys looking for? He, he, he is the leader that he should be in that moment. He approaches them. He, he shows by approaching them here to me that he is in complete control of the situation. He was always in control. But then he says something very amazing. When they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth in verse 5, he says, I am he. Now, some of your Bibles may not have the word he in there. The original Greek would read like this, I am. Does that sound familiar to you? Exodus 3.14, Moses at the burning bush. God says to Moses, go tell the people to do this, this, and that. And Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, you tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. And so Jesus here makes a similar statement, and he's done it before in John. He has said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the truth. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And now, very plainly, he says the name of God, and he says, I am. Some of you work around kids, um, or you around teenagers. There's a saying that has developed, I don't know how long the saying's been going on, but if a kid does good on their test, or maybe they do something good in sports, or maybe they know somebody who's a good singer or something, they'll say this. They'll say, let's just imagine a kid does well on something. He'll say, I'm him. You ever heard a kid say that? I'm him. Or, or he's him. Cooper, ever heard that? Guys, ever heard that? I'm him. The first time I heard some kids say that, I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not him. 
It's a saying that kids say, basically saying, I'm the man. That's how we would say it, I'm the man, right, or he's the man. They say, I'm him. And every time I hear a kid say that, I'm like, you're not him. <laughs> you're not that great. You're not the man. And so as I was reading this, and they ask Jesus, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I'm him. But when Jesus says, I'm him, <laughs> that means something. There is power behind the name of God. There's power when Jesus says anything, and there's especially power here when he says, I am. As a matter of fact, and this speaks to his nature as God, look at the next verse. We just looked at it, verse 6. As soon as he said, I am, notice that the people, Judas and the officials, the, the soldiers, go backward and fall to the ground. I believe here in some miraculous way or whatever you want to say about it, Jesus spoke in such a way that they saw or felt his power. And these hardened, many of them, soldiers who would be bad to the bone dudes, when he says, I am, they fall back. To see what that was like, I, I don't know. It had to be amazing. And Jesus, again, shows here that he is in complete control of the situation. He shows his nature by saying, I am, and he shows his power by reminding them that he is. It's almost as if Jesus was saying here, if this situation in this garden, with all these soldiers and me and my disciples, if this situation is about power, all y'all are outmanned. <laughs> if it was about power... I'm still in control. But we know this situation was not about power. It was about sacrifice. Jesus could have done anything he wanted to these soldiers, right? Because of his power. But he knew this was a time of sacrifice. What a powerful Savior who could surrender for a moment, his power to follow the will of God. If any of us had power to use in this moment, we would have used that power. And Jesus said, no, I'll give you a glimpse of it, but I have a mission to fulfill. And so we see his power, we see his nature, and we see his humility. Jesus died of his own free will, didn't he? He willingly died. He willingly gave his life. He said, no one takes it from me, but I willingly lay it down. There was no amount of soldiers that could have held him if he did not want to be held. There's no official, as we're going to read later today and next week, no high priest, no Roman governor, no official could have done anything to him if he did not allow it to happen. But Jesus willingly went. Someone said, we have a Savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. He was willing. And listen, if anybody's listening today and does not know Christ, He is willing if you will turn to Him. Behold His nature, behold His power, and behold His humility. Look at verses 7 through 9. Then asked he them again, 
Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Here Jesus simply protects his disciples. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these guys go. Showing his love for his disciples, his care for his disciples, being a good leader there. Verses 10 through 12. Then Simon Peter, having a sword. I don't know how many times we hear about Simon Peter's sword. But he's got one now at this time. Probably good to have, though, in those days, to, just to protect yourself. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. So Peter decides here, as it probably doesn't surprise us, knowing Simon Peter, that there, it's not going down like this. He's going to take his sword. He's going to resort to violence. And I don't know, you could decide, was Peter a good aim or a bad aim? Did he mean to cut off the ear, or was he going for the neck and miss? Knowing Simon Peter, I think he might have been going for the neck and just happened to miss. But he cut off the ear, showing that he was trying to escalate the situation. Jesus calms it, stops it. Jesus, in another gospel, even takes and heals Malchus's ear, doesn't he? The other gospels tell us that, not, not John. By the way, John's also the only gospel that mentions Peter by name. The others just say a disciple did it, but John says it was Peter who, who did this. And I want you to notice, as you can glance down at your Bible, in verse 10, Simon Peter cuts off this man's ear, and we're only a few verses away from Simon Peter denying Christ. He is willing to swing the sword, but in a few verses, he, won't, he will deny Christ with his tongue. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. Look at verse 12. Jesus, again, allows them to take him and to bind him. And from here on out, from here until the next chapter, Christ is in custody. Willingly in custody. Verses 13 and 14. And led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And so Jesus here basically goes to what many call his first hearing. They take him to a man named Annas. Annas uh, was the high priest. The Romans did not like him, so they named a new high priest, Caiaphas. But Annas was kind of the power behind the power. He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. And so they still liked him as far as a leader would go. So they go and take Christ to, to Annas. The bottom line is, neither of these were good people. Neither of these were good men. They both wanted Christ gone. Now, let's go back to Simon Peter, 15 through 18. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. 
Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and the officers stood there, who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So here we see kind of two things going on. Christ being taken into a hearing, and then we go back and forth between the hearing and Simon Peter following. And so Simon Peter follows, another disciple follows. This other disciple, by the way, is John. John so often tends to not call himself by name. Remember, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loves. He calls himself the one leaning against Christ at the, at the table. And so this is John who had some kind of political influence or he knew people, he had some connections. He's able to bring Peter into the, the room there. But on the way in, Peter denies Christ. Let's continue, 19 through 24. So the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. So here's the hearing. Jesus, tell us about your doctrine, tell us about your teaching, and tell us about your disciples. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I, I taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So to make this, to summarize this part, this trial was not happening the way it should happen. And there are so many different things. We might dive into some of these Wednesday night, but there are so many ways in which these Jews were doing this the wrong way. And Jesus is not being a smart aleck here when he says, I've spoken plainly in the temple, in the synagogue, He's, he's speaking plain truth, but he's also trying to speak le like legal things to them and say, if I've done wrong, call witnesses who heard what I've said. Bring forth the witnesses, which was how they were supposed to handle it. There was actually no charge supposed to be made without witnesses, according to their law. But they didn't want to hear it. And this one man, in verse 22, one officer, takes his hand and, and slaps Jesus. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty insulting, right? Remember last year, was it last year when, uh, was it Will Smith, the actor, slapped Chris Rock on stage? Just such a cowardly move to go up and slap a small man who can't do anything about it um, for making a joke that, I don't remember the joke, it was probably funny, but, but such, a, such an insulting thing to get slapped. You ever been slapped in the face, like for real? I think I'd rather be punched in the face. I'd rather have neither. <laughs> but Jesse's like, hmm. <laughs> but to be slapped, that's not only could it hurt, but it's, it just feels insulting. This guy, Jesus says nothing wrong, and he slaps the Lord in the face. How would you like to be the owner of that hand? I don't want to be that guy. And yet, as sinners, 
how often have we slapped the glory of God by our sin, by denying him, rejecting him with our sin? But I still don't want to be this guy. (laughs) Verse 25, let's go back to Simon Peter. We go back and forth, the trials to Simon Peter. Verse 25, and Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. So he's out there by the fire. They said, therefore, unto him, Are not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Our final point this morning, we take from Simon Peter, and it's this. A true Christian has moments of weakness, but ultimately is kept by Christ. A true Christian has moments of weakness, but is ultimately kept by Christ. Kendall, see if you can tap on that and slide that up. There's more under there that I I did that wrong. But we know Simon Peter is famous for denying Christ three times. Jesus had already predicted it, hadn't he? Jesus said, Or Peter said, Lord, if everybody else abandons you, I will never abandon you. And Jesus says, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And of course, it came came to be. This, This famous disciple, this boisterous, outspoken disciple, is met with just people standing around a fire, a community fire, just to kind of get warm. And he denies Christ. What can we learn from this? How can we learn from Peter's weakness? And how can we overcome our own weakness? I'm going to give you three ways. If you're taking notes, jot these down. First, we need to be confident in the Lord, not in ourselves. Again, Peter had said, if everyone else abandons you, I never will. Emphasis on me, right? I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm stronger than them. I'm more spiritual than them. I'm more faithful than them. If they all fall away from you, I never will. And it makes me wonder, if Peter had not been so sure about not denying, would he have denied? I know it was part of God's plan, so, you know. But was he so self-confident, so self-assured of who he was that it brought it to be? And so I ask us, church, are we more confident in self than in Christ? Are we more confident in our knowledge of truth than in knowing the God of truth? And I know in our church there are many people who know the word and love the word. And we were discussing it this morning that sometimes the people who know the word the best can sometimes not apply it to our own lives. And we can become hard-hearted toward other people or hard-headed or mean and not loving. And the truth is, us who know Christ and have confidence in Him should be loving and caring for others. Some people trust in knowledge. Others, it's their faith. They say, I'm, I'm just really spiritual. Remember I told you about the lady one time who told me in church? She said, Hey, Brother Kelby, I'm the most humble person in this church. (laughs) You know? I was like, I don't believe you. (laughs) 
but she was a person who really kind of bragged a little bit about their, her own faith more than Christ. How many of us brag about our own ex- or take confidence in our own experience? My experience is this, so this must be the way it is. If, if life has taught me anything, and the Word has taught me anything, is that my experiences aren't always the truth, but the Word is true. How many of us depend on our job, our bank account, our health, our family? How many put our confidence in that? Lord, forgive us for being confident in those things and not in Christ. Trust Him for the little things in your life. Trust Him for the big things. Trust Him. Peter learned to trust Him, by the way, didn't he? He learned to trust Him. Number two, if we want to overcome, learn from Peter's weakness and overcome our own, we need to be close to Him. Again, I go back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus goes in to pray and Peter falls asleep with those other disciples, with James and John. If Peter had watched and prayed as Jesus had told him to do, if Peter had been that man of prayer in those moments, would he have been able to find grace to overcome his weaknesses here? Again, I know it's God's plan. How about this? Peter is outside by the fire. What if Peter had been in there closer to where, or try to get in there closer to where Jesus was, but he's out there hanging out with the other people by the fire? And so I apply that this way. We need to be close to Christ. Are you close to the Lord that you say you serve? How do you know if you're close to someone? If you're close to someone, you talk to them on a pretty regular basis, don't you? The people you're closest with, actually, you probably talk to every day, don't you? Now, sometimes we have old friends. I have old friends that I could not see for years, right? Then all of a sudden you meet up with them, and it's just like you pick, pick up where you left off. But when it comes to our closest relatives, our closest friends, when it comes to the Lord, there should be a regular fellowship between us and Him. And we always say it, but that comes through the Word, through prayer, and through the church. We will never overcome our weaknesses unless we are close to our strength. And Christ is our strength. Are you close to Him this morning? And thirdly, be courageous for the Lord. Again, Peter had swung the sword. Some would say courageously. Some would say that was kind of a wild thing to do, surrounded by all these soldiers. He'd swung the sword, and then a few minutes later, a servant girl walks up and says, Aren't you the one with Jesus? The guy who had just cut off a guy's ear had a little girl come up to him and say, Aren't you the one with Jesus? And he says, Not me, you got the wrong person. We do see, by the way, elsewhere that Peter weeps bitterly about this. We also see later, we're going to see it in the end of the study, that Jesus restores him. And we're going to see later in Acts chapter 2 that he stands up and preaches at Pentecost and thousands of people are saved. But what we can learn from today's text is that the fear of man does us no good. What God thinks of us is infinitely more important 
than what any man thinks of us. Right? Being able to please God with our words, our attitudes, our actions is much more important than pleasing other people with our words, attitudes, and actions. And I think we need to be reminded this morning that time is short. For all of us, we never know how much longer we have on this earth. So why should we live it worried about what people think of us more than we worry about what Christ thinks of us? Time is short. People are in need. We need to be courageous for Christ. And may we never deny Him. May we make it in our hearts now, a statement in our hearts now to say, if a time comes for me to confess Christ, I will confess Christ and not deny. When I look at Simon Peter, I think faith is fragile. Because Simon Peter has, in my opinion, a greater faith than I'll ever experience in my life. Was a greater follower of Jesus than I can ever hope to be. And yet his Christian life is a roller coaster. But he did learn. If anybody learned it, he learned to be confident in the Lord, to be close to the Lord, and to be courageous for the Lord. May God help us all do the same. Hope you'll be back next week as we turn our attention to the, the trials here in Jesus before Pilate. Let's pray.